Now, while we have been going through the book of First Peter together, providence of God due to this past week's illness, I loaned it up front. There was no preparation allowed for that. And as I thought about something I had done before that I could bring to you, it came to me that uh, I'd like to bring a message anchored in the Gospel of Mark, the second chapter, in the early part of the third chapter, Mark's Gospel, chapter 2, beginning at verse 13, we'll actually read through verse 6 in the third chapter, Mark 2, beginning at verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose, followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins." But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and he also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now chapter 3, verse 1. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and he watched Jesus to see, they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? They were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved, their hardness of heart said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out. His hand was restored. 
the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy him. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Father, in this time now, by your Spirit, help us that we rightly see and hear this your word. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I have referred to the Gospel of Mark as the fisherman's memoir. That is, there's evidence, and we'll not take time to look at it at this point, but suffice it to say there's evidence that Mark, in giving us his Gospel account, is likely reflecting on Simon Peter's account. That is, that Simon Peter is the eyewitness, and Mark is reflecting what Simon Peter saw and heard. There are things in the Gospel of Mark that appear to be things only Peter would have known. And so there's a bit of a connection between 1 Peter and the Gospel of Mark. The question becomes, why was Jesus so controversial? Why did some find him so objectionable? Why was he so overwhelmingly kind to some and so astonishingly harsh toward others? Now, the Gospels are a glorious thing to read, and I encourage you to spend time in the Gospels. I am still struck by something a woman said to me over 20 years ago, having newly come to Christ, (coughs) and I was preaching in one of the Gospels at that time, and as she left the service that Sunday morning, she said, you know what? I like Jesus. Now, if you're really spiritual, you're saying, well, that's just terrible. You ought to love Jesus. It's not up to you whether you like him or not. But I understand the heart of what she was saying. She was getting an acquaintance with the Savior that she did not have before. That can do your soul a lot of good. Kent Hughes said, I'm convinced that if every man and woman of the literate population of the world would carefully read the Gospels through for themselves, we'd witness a spiritual harvest beyond what the world has ever seen. I think there's some truth to that. But I think also one must weigh the outcome of the stories in light of human pride and wickedness and the strength of those things. In fact, some so impregnable without the powerful work of God, it wouldn't matter what was read, they would not be changed. There's this undercurrent of conflict through these stories between religious leaders and Jesus. These four events, the call of Levi, the fasting question, the question about Sabbath that extends into two accounts, one about the disciples harvesting harvesting some grain, and the other about the man with a withered hand. And their response seems to be reflected in another place whenever the paralytic in the earlier part of chapter 2 is lowered through the ceiling, <coughs> excuse me, that He says, son, your sins are forgiven. And their response is, why, the man's blaspheming. Only God can forgive sins. Now let me point out, they're right in their declaration. Only God can forgive sins in that absolute sense. They're wrong in their application, their identification. They only see Jesus as a man, and he confronts them with his identity as the Son of Man. 
These four events now from Peter's memory and Mark's pen show us the glory of Christ as well as the hardness of the human heart. The sinners in the stories as well as the religious leaders are both examples of our deepest problems. We are rebels against God. But while the sinners appear to respond to the ministry of Christ with faith, the leadership finds him offensive. Now keep in mind, they're okay with most of his teaching. And they're okay with his miracles. But there are key points where they cannot endorse him. What this exposes is something deeply rooted in our hearts. We think our sin problem is superficial and not serious. In fact, to quote our brother Al Mohler, we think that our problems are all external and the solutions are all internal. And the Bible turns it around on us. Our problems are internal and the solution is external. You see, our radical sinfulness demands a radical Savior. Now, the word radical comes from the Latin and radix means root. Our sinfulness is rooted deeply in us. And we need a Savior that can root out and deal with the depth of our problem. So what is the text showing us? I think first this. Jesus' mission rescues sinners. Now, he goes out again beside the sea. He's out there and people are following him and as they follow, he teaches them. Now, Jesus is not some footloose wandering philosopher without a map or a compass. He's intentional in what he does. He's not sitting home taking calls, but he's out making calls, if you will. <clears throat> and while he's out and about, <clears throat> he passed by a tax booth. Now, think of it this way. It would be the equivalent of a local federal or state government office, maybe just a small one, but it was where you went to pay your taxes. Now, we avoid things like that today to the best of our ability in our culture for the lack of efficiency and also because nobody really wants to talk to somebody that's collecting taxes and those collecting have very little interest in having a conversation. Please write your check or get your credit card or your debit card and just send us the money. But this was out and about. It was a very much a cash economy. The Roman system of taxation depended on graft and greed. It assumed that the tax collector would always get a little extra. It didn't pay a lot to be a tax collector, but if you could pad the bill, you could get rich and pad the bill they did. It was known as tax farming, kind of like buying a franchise. Now, what kind of taxes are we talking? Well, there was a poll tax, which all men from 14 to 65 and women from 12 to 65 had to pay simply for being alive. There was a ground tax, which required one-tenth of all grain and one-fifth of all wine and oil produced. There was a tax on fish in some regions. There was an income tax, which was 1% of one's annual income. There were other taxes and separate duties charged. A cart could be taxed as could each wheel on the cart. 
A Jew who collected taxes was disqualified in Jewish society as a judge or a witness in court. They were expelled from the synagogue. The touch of a tax collector rendered a house unclean. Jews were forbidden from receiving money or even alms from a tax collector. That is, if you were out begging and a tax collector gave you money, you were to give it back. Jews could lie to tax collectors since revenue was considered robbery. And Jesus looks at a tax collector, Levi, whom we also know as Matthew. Follow me. The Mishnah, one of the books that connected to the Torah, kind of a commentary, described sinners. And here's the list of sinners that were the most obvious to them. Gamblers, moneylenders, people who raced doves for sport, people who trade on the Sabbath year, thieves, violent people, and these last two are intriguing to me, shepherds, tax collectors. Jesus calls a tax collector the following. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, he actually goes to Matthew or Levi's house and has dinner. Now, when it says they reclined at table, keep in mind, wasn't chairs and tables. Tables were very low typically to the ground and you laid on your left side, on your left elbow, and you'd reach out with your right hand to get food from a common table area in front of you. Reclining at table with Jesus in some ways almost makes Jesus more the host than Matthew. The scandal for those around him, is that Jesus doesn't require repentance and self-reformation as a precondition of love and acceptance. He goes to him, dines with him, without for a moment requiring anything of him yet other than follow me. And notice who it was, the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw he's eating with sinners and tax collectors, they object, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? They hated tax collectors. In fact, the Talmud put it this way, it is righteous to lie and deceive a tax collector. Why is he eating with them? Mark's use of the word sinners here I got this from Kim Riddlebarger. Probably doesn't refer to sinful people in general, as in the sense we're all sinners. Mark uses the term sinner as a technical term for a class of people whom the Pharisees regarded as people who had no interest in complying with their interpretation of Mosaic law. Sinners did not follow laws regarding ceremonial cleanliness, regarding food. They ate like Gentiles. They did not pay the tithe to the synagogue. The Pharisees regarded these people as outcasts. 
Why are you hanging around with this kind of person? And of course, Jesus' whole response is, the well don't need a physician. Those who are sick need a physician. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And please understand, when Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous, I don't believe for a moment he was commending the Pharisees as righteous. He's saying, you don't think you need me. You're righteous in your own eyes. Back in the 1800s, there was a poor woman living in England in the mid-19th century who began attending a church women's meeting. This poor woman had been living with a man of a different race and without benefit of marriage, and she had a child with this man, and she brought her child with her. She liked the meeting and came back again and again. When the vicar came to her and said, I must ask you not to come to this meeting again. Seeing her questioning look, he continued, the other women say they'll stop coming if you continue to come. Looking at the vicar with a wistfulness, she said, Sir, I know I'm a sinner, but isn't there anywhere a sinner can go? Fortunately, by the grace of God, the Salvation Army found her, and she was claimed for Christ. This is precisely what Matthew was up against until he met Christ. Tony Campalo, whose politics I never understood and many of his positions I found bewildering, told about going to Honolulu on a vacation. He was unable to sleep one night with the time difference in the two places, having lived on the East Coast and now being in Hawaii. So he found an all-night diner to get a snack. And he's sitting there, he overheard a group of women, turned out prostitutes, talking. And one of them mentioned to her friends that the next day was her 39th birthday. Another replied, well, what do you want, a birthday party? She retreated into her defensive shell. I've, I've never had one of those my whole life. Why should I expect one now? And struck Campalo that maybe it'd be a good idea to conspire with the owner of the diner to throw her a surprise party the next night. So a cake was baked and was prepared. The next night, three in the morning, the cries of happy birthday from her small group of friends and the stranger left her stunned. She was shocked that anyone would go to so much trouble for her, and she asked if she could take the cake home and left with her prize. When she left, Campalo offered to pray and prayed for her salvation, for her life to change and for God to be good to her. And the prayer startled the owner, who then antagonistically said, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? And he responded, I belong to a church that threw birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. Now somebody will object. But Jesus calls them to repentance. He doesn't leave them in their sinful behavior. You'd be correct. But you understand, he isn't as disturbed by their sinfulness as he is by the folks who are just as wicked, just as sick, just as needy, but cannot see their need. Rob Rayburn. 
as the Bible says and Christian experience universally confirms, becoming and being a Christian doesn't make as much of a difference in our behavior as we wish it did. Not in this life, not in this world. Our behavior remains more like the unbelievers than Christ's, more like the unbelievers than it will be in heaven. No, the great difference lies not in being rid of our sin, but in our admission of it, of the viciousness of it, of the inexcusable ugliness of our hearts and our selfishness and pride, of the depth of our rebellion against God, of our anti-God state of mind and heart. It's the honest admission of it, the confession of it, the acceptance that all depends on God's willingness to forgive us, that forgiveness is everything. That's what makes a Christian. No other religion brings this message. No other faith or philosophy begins with the declaration that you are lost and that only God can save you if only He will. That is Jesus' mission. He rescues sinners. The second aspect then, Jesus' message explodes all the old categories. The question is fasting. Why aren't, and I'll, I'll just term it this way, why aren't you spiritual? That's really the question. Because John's disciples all fasted and the Pharisees all fasted. The Pharisee movement um, numbered about 6,000 persons, according to Josephus, in the first century. They were regarded as the authorized successors of the Torah who sat on Moses' seat. They alone of all the groups, Sadducees, Herodians, Pharisees, so on, were the only group that survived the war with Rome after 70 A.D. They believed in the sovereignty of God, coupled with human accountability for virtue and vice. They believed in the resurrection of the dead, angels and demons, a scrupulous adherence both to the written Torah and to the oral traditions, based on it, coupled with expressed disdain for those who were ignorant, negligent, or violators of the law. Jesus had very little interaction overall with Sadducees, Herodians, and Zealots, and with none of the Essenes, but regular ongoing feud with the Pharisees, especially over their traditions. Why don't you fast? Now see, Judaism only required fasting once a year. Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Now the tradition specified there were three other types of fasts you could do to lament a national tragedy like the destruction of the temple. In times of crisis, war or plague or drought or famine, and any number of personal reasons. The Pharisees fasted Mondays and Thursdays. We're not sure about John's disciples. But the implication is this. If you want to be taken seriously, you'd better get on board with the fasting protocols. But Jesus turns it upside down. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom's with them? What an intriguing comparison. Now, being in my line of work, I've been at a lot of weddings. I'm here to tell you something. If a wedding's sad, something's wrong. Something's deeply, terribly wrong. Right? Weddings are supposed to be happy times. 
Now, I'm not talking about occasional moms and dads who can't seem to get over it. Just gave away their baby. And that doesn't necessarily mean the wife. That sometimes means the husband. I've seen both. But overall, a wedding is seen as a joyful time. And that's the comparison Jesus makes. Jesus cites three pictures to point out the problem with fasting related to the coming of the kingdom. He uses um, this picture of wedding feasts first. And a wedding usually was a seven-day celebration for a virgin bride, three days for a remarriage. It was a serious celebration, and talk of a fast at such an event would have been inappropriate. A wedding was not a time to abstain. When Jesus introduces this abrupt and dismaying image, the bridegroom forcefully removed, that, that would have been a time to fast. But a wedding is not. And then he uses two parables. These are the first two in the Gospel of Mark torn clothes, and ruptured wineskins. Now, for those of us who don't do much mending anymore, I don't know a lot of folks that bother to mend clothes much anymore. When you can go down to local stores and buy rather cheap clothing, mending clothing doesn't get much play anymore. But in a time when it was harder to get and clothing was considered not things that you had a lot of. People didn't have closets full of clothes, typically. You would mend clothing. Well, here's this picture. You've got this older garment that has a tear in it, and it needs to be mended. Well, if you take a piece of cloth that has never been washed, and you sew it onto that, the first time it's washed, that cloth is going to shrink, and when it shrinks, it's going to tear the older clothing. Or the other picture about wineskins. I still recall seeing a documentary some years ago about this part of the world, the Middle East, and it showed a marketplace, and there was obviously, it, it struck me when I saw it, it's kind of in the background, but it was people who had wineskins. And you could tell they were skins because you could still tell there were four legs sticking out. They'd sewed the thing up tight, they'd filled it with wine, and as the wine had matured and the yeast had worked, it had expanded, and they were like balloon animals, headless, tailless, hoofless balloon animals, filled not with helium, but wine. Now, that skin, when it's initially used in that way, would stretch. But you never use that same wine skin again with new wine because you would fill it up and it would have reached its capacity. The new wine would expand and ruin the wine skins. You can't, what's the point? You can't integrate Jesus and the kingdom with the existing structures. He did not come to abolish, nor did he come to continue. He came to fulfill and thus to change. Jesus comes with a message that explodes all the old categories. This is about joy. Well, his mission rescues sinners. His message explodes old categories. Thirdly, his majesty supersedes the law. Now, we have two things here, two stories. The first one, arguing about the Sabbath, is, is a fairly simple picture. Jesus and the disciples are walking through a field, and as they're walking through the field, gleaning laws meant you left some grain along the sides and in the corners for poor folks to get something to eat. 
Now, if you're wondering about the image, they would actually go along, rub the heads off the grain, rub it out in their hands to get the husk, and then they would eat the raw grain. I will tell you, I have attempted this. It is not a pleasant experience. You don't go looking for restaurants that serve this. This will never be haute cuisine. It'll never be on anybody's menu, something new. It's a lot of work to chew. But if you're hungry, if you're starving, it's a way to live. The problem was they saw this as harvesting. Two observances set the Jews apart from their contemporaries, circumcision and Sabbath keeping. In an effort not to violate the Sabbath, they had come up with 39 classes of work that profane the Sabbath. Now here's part of the list. Not all of it, part of it. Plowing, hunting, butchering, tying or loosening knots, sewing more than one stitch, writing more than one letter. You couldn't set a dislocated foot or hand. You couldn't repair a fallen roof except to look for the injured. You could temporarily prop it up then. And you couldn't walk more than 1,999 paces. If you did any of those things, you were violating Sabbath. They objected to reaping. And Jesus turns it on them. He makes it clear by a comparison to David. David and his men eat the dedicated bread that was only for the priests. Why didn't God destroy them for that? And then he makes the principle. The Sabbath was made to encourage life, not deny life. And the Son of Man... This was the more intriguing one to them, folks. Verse 27, they might have taken that as some kind of rabbinical profundity. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. They might have generally agreed with that, but I'm going to say at verse 28, they were upset. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus' majesty supersedes the law. My friend, he's not saying the law didn't matter. He's saying, I'm the law giver. I'm the one who gave this. I'm Lord of this. Now, let me quickly show you this last one. We not only have Jesus' mission to rescue sinners, His message exploding the old categories, His majesty superseding the law. Finally, Jesus' mercy heals our diseases. Now, in this case, there is no exchange. In the other three, there's comments made. This one, Jesus knows their thoughts. It's synagogue. There's a man with an injured, withered, crippled, disabled arm. And they watched him. Would he heal on the Sabbath? Now keep in mind, Jesus already now has a reputation as a blasphemer and a moral man because he hangs out with sinners, an apostate from religious customs, and a Sabbath breaker. Now the conflict comes to a head. And of all things, it comes to a head over healing a man. Who would have thought folks who are zealous for the Lord and supposedly zealous for his salvation are ready to use a handicapped man as a kind of trap? Does that not tell us something about the darkness of our own hearts? They don't ask the question. Jesus asks the question. Verse 4. 
Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out. It's restored. Love here is not contradictory to God's law but it rightly fulfills God's law. Jesus' compassion is free, but costly. The outcome here is the beginning of the plot to take his life. You see how that ends? The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with, of all people, the Herodians. The Herodians were Jews who had compromised with Herod. Pharisees and Herodians loathed one another that they united around their common hatred of Jesus. How to destroy him. You see, my friend, here's the tragedy. Here's Jesus showing mercy in the healing of disease. And the greatest mercy is the healing of our sinfulness. The Pharisees understood the reality of sin, but they thought sin could be managed. If you simply followed the right procedures, the right list of rules, with enough energy and intensity, you could manage the sin in your life. And if you weren't interested in managing your sin problem, then God certainly had nothing to do with you. My friend, that misses the whole point of the power of the gospel and the purpose of Christ. Listen to Rob Rayburn again. What I'm saying is that it doesn't make much difference whether a person is religious or not, believes in life after death or not, calls himself a Christian or not. Most people rest their hopes of whatever they mean by salvation on their own behavior. What they imagine to be their goodness. But Christ will have nothing of that. The fact that people so naturally seemingly so inevitably think this way that people of every religious and philosophical stripe embrace this viewpoint is perhaps the surest demonstration of man's fallenness, of the darkness of his mind, of his pride, and of his hopeless bondage to himself. We think our sin surface and manageable when it is deep, radical, soul-destroying and demand a radical salvation from a glorious, mighty Savior. Oh, that we would rest in what Christ does. He's going to blow up your old categories, my friend. He's going to shatter your self-righteousness to make you rest in Him. Oh, may the Lord now bless the preaching of His Word. I'm going to ask Chuck Phillips if he'd come now and lead us in a benediction.